listening to The Bloodsucking Feminists, your number one Scottish Kiwi podcast focused on the three Fs. Fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And you're listening to episode six, Vampire Musical Suck, or Tanz de Vampire. Trigger warnings for this episode include vampire typical violence and discussions of rape and sexual violence. Other warnings include... Loud music, our terrible pronunciation of German, and Michael Crawford. If you are a Michael Crawford fan, we won't apologise. It's his own fault, okay? You will understand when we get to it. It's highly deserved. So it's finally here! We've been so excited. (laughs) This is the reason why I wanted to do this. This is the pretty much the episode we've been waiting to do since we decided to do the podcast. It's the Halloween episode! Because nothing says Halloween more like German-language Austrian musical adaptations of Roman Polanski movies. As analysed by uh, Scott and a Kiwi. So, do you want to tell the wonderful listeners what Tans der Vampire actually is? Um, in short, the best description is the 1986 movie Labyrinth meets Twilight while all ramped up on whatever was in that hallucinogenic peat David Bowie gave Hoggle to give to Sarah to eat. That's the short version, and you basically get the tone. Oh, there's also music by Jim Steinman, and the bass theme is Total Eclipse of the Heart. That, that's it. <laughs> the thing is, it's way better than that sounds. Basically, it's a, a loving parody of the traditional vampire film with the peep strangers in town arrive at the mysterious town. They're warned not to go up to the castle. They go up to the castle. Shit happens. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's based on a 1967 movie by Roman Polanski called... The Fearless Vampire Killers, or Pardon Me, But Your Teeth Are In My Neck. That title is the funniest thing about this movie. It's supposed to be a comedy. It's supposed to be a parody of the, the Hammer Horror-style vampire genre. It's really not funny. I, I giggled maybe twice. Well, you did better than me. I smiled at the chasing after the vampire sequence on skis, and the bit where um, Ambrosius is... Not the bit where he first gets stuck in the window, but when Alfred looks out the window like half a day later to realise that he's still stuck there. It's a strange movie because Mel Brooks has this rule that if you're going to parody something, make sure it's something that you actually love. Because when you parody or pastiche something that you don't like, it just becomes hateful and bitter and not funny. So Mel Brooks has actually made a really funny horror parody. It's called Young Frankenstein. If you want a really good Hammer Hodder parody, watch Carry On Screaming, which actually has the benefit of being filmed on all of the old Hammer Hodder sets. And, carry and on, it's actually funny. And the Carry On people know how to do funny. Yeah, Polanski has a real tin ear for humour, and he doesn't seem to actually like Hodder films, particularly the strain of vampire fiction that he is parodying, or supposed to be parodying. Because the count in this version of the story, the original version, is so clearly based on Christopher Lee's Dracula. Just down to the, the, the hair and the walk and the, the height of him. It's very Christopher Lee. And then you have the gratuitous pretty woman who seems to be naked or scantily clad for a lot of the film. In this case, it's Sharon Tate, the director's wife. Were they married at this time? or I think this was before they got married. 
So at the time, fiancé, certainly. But she has really nothing to work with here. Sharon Tate was never known for being best actress, but she could work with when, stuff when she had the material. Here, she seems to be, let us put you in a bath and then spank you occasionally. Yeah. Which, you know, she has, her, she has her moments when she has that luminous presence we think of, when we think of sort of Sharon Tate, that, wow, she was so pretty thing. She is incredibly beautiful in this movie. She really is. Even the bad dubbing can't take away from that. And the dubbing in here is, is horrendous. I think MGM just put the dub in without telling Polanski. Surprise! Which is why, Free dub. Yeah. The, really, the only thing that sets the tone as a comedy is, is the opening credits, which is a cartoon. Yeah. Otherwise, it's it's nicely shot in places. It's got sort of the traditional gothic tropes of the big crumbling castle and the, the sort of starved aristocracy who are the vampires. I actually think that there's a, a smidgen of potential with the vampires themselves. You see them in this big set piece which at the end, which is the ball, and they're all dusty and crumbling and clinging to the vestiges of life that they have. And the dance itself it is, is super boring. Yeah, it is the most morose and lifeless, no pun intended, take on vampirism I've seen in a while. It's the shadow of life. Yes. That you see a lot of vampire things trying to come up with in their films or whatever, but this actually just has that attempt at mimicry and failing because they can never be there again. And they all look old, as in they look like they were old when they were turned into vampires. I don't know if that was the case or if it's just as they have sort of naturally aged in the way that humans do. Or they're just so starved that they're so desiccate and so all the stuff that keeps you looking young is, like, not there. I mean, like Gary yeah, Oldman they're, they're... in um, Dracula. <laughs> not Gary yeah. Oldman in general. But... I was about to say, that's a bit mean. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of the contrast it creates between these, you know, crumbling, lifeless shells and then Sharon Tate when she comes in, it doesn't seem like the most alluring option to Sharon Tate. But in this version of the story, she doesn't have much agency over this choice, it is forced upon her in that very traditional, poor virgin is dragged away by the bad vampires. Yeah, so that, that, that's basically it. It's an unfunny parody which has seems to have no love for the source material, but has a lot of potential if it was done by someone who loved and knew what it was actually doing. Fortunately. Yeah, fortunately somebody decided to call Jim Steinman <laughs> or rather um, Michael Kunzer, who was this time most famous for his musical Elizabeth, which is based on Empress Sissy and her love-hate relationship with death. And I do mean relationship. It's it's a, it's a musical. That, that sort of sums it up. And the musical gets right every misstep, well, every comedic misstep that the um, original movie makes. And it's really interesting to see how that happens because, well, 1997, they come up with a musical, it's done, but it shows just how close the original movie was to being funny. They've just adjusted the timing or tweaked a line slightly and boom, fall on the floor laughing. Yeah, the benefits with theatre is you can kind of play this stuff up a little bit mm-hmm. and they, they leer to camp very frequently, but they can get away with it here. The tone is so wildly different from the original material, whereas the movie is based more or supposedly based more on Hammer Horror. This leans more to the melodramatic gothic romance of Anne Rice, but there's also clear non-vampire influences there, mainly Phantom of the Opera. And as you mentioned before, David Bowie and Labyrinth. Although And a little bit of and a little bit of glam and hair metal in there as well. I mean this is the guy that wrote songs for Meatloaf. Yep. 
the unique thing about this musical is that, well, it's not really unique in the sense of Michael Kunz's musical, but it's based on an English language property, but with an English um, language, well, an English speaking composer, but it's all done in German. Because uh, Vienna, especially, is sort of the heart of the European musical scene. You see a lot of the big musicals, especially the original German language ones, starting in Vienna and then moving to Germany and then getting translated into French and to Dutch and to Hungarian into, well in this case it was also translated into Finnish and then it hits Japan because Japan does its thing. It becomes big in all these places that we don't tend to think of as musical theatre places. Germany and Austria have a big musical theatre background, but you don't think of Estonia having one of those. That was one. That was the one I was thinking of, couldn't think of, rather. After seeing the success of um, the German language musical and all its translations, as Americans want to do, they see another country be successful, they decide, well, we've got to get onto that and make our own version and make it terrible. Well, they certainly succeeded on the make it terrible part. That's all we're going to touch upon now because... If we start hating on the Broadway version, we will never stop. Yeah, we, we will give you the appropriate background before we get there. But seriously, it is one of the, the great train wrecks of theatre. You're going to love it. But before we get there, let's actually talk more about Tans because Tans is good. Tans I is genuinely good. love it. But it is the perfect example of something that contains some highly problematic stuff but you still love and watch. We love it, even though we know it has some highly problematic material, and it shows that you, you, it is possible to like things that are problematic if you understand and acknowledge that and do something about it. Yes? Yeah, pretty much. Some of the stuff that is problematic comes from the original source material. Others are problematic tropes attached to vampire fiction in general. And other problematic tropes evolved with the show as it changed locations as it went through edits as it became more popular for certain elements and played up to those things it kind of flanderizes itself in many ways stupid which isn't always (laughs) which isn't necessarily a bad thing i think it does show changing times it becomes problematic in a new way because of that we're talking primarily about one character in the musical who we'll get to but i think we need to actually explain what the plot of this musical is it's a very familiar tale with appropriate twists on it. Yes, so we've got the vampire hunting professor and his beleaguered assistant, Professor Ambrosius and Alfred. Um, When we first meet them, Alfred's looking for the professor and the professor himself is frozen on the ground because he got lost. So that shows you exactly how competent Ambrosius is. Um, Alfred picks up, takes him to the local village where they're all singing about garlic because... Vampires are nearby, and what do you wear to keep the vampires away? But garlic. Yes, there is an entire song about garlic, and it's amazing. It is amazing. It's so catchy. <laughs> when they arrive at the inn, they're taken in by the innkeeper and his wife, um, Yoin Chagall and Rebecca, and they have a very beautiful daughter, Sarah, and a very boobtacular maid, Magda. That basically rounds out your human cast, at least in the beginning. Professor Ambrosius discovers he's finally come to the right place. He is going to find the vampire and study him and kill him. And Alfred, meanwhile, is distracted by first Magda and then Sarah. He falls in love with her pretty quick, or at least the idea of her pretty quick. Sarah, meanwhile, is not exactly the 
dream girl that he thinks she is. She dreams of adventure in the great wide somewhere to borrow from another musical. She, she wants excitement and love and passion. She wants more than just being stuck in her bedroom covered in garlic. The room's covered in garlic, not her. Although I suppose if Chagall had his way, she would be covered in garlic. She just wants to have a bath with her sponge and just have something more than the life she's currently got. Alfred is possibly a way out of that, considering he comes from the grand city of Königsberg, you know, which is just a university city. But to her small town life, it seems like a huge thing. So he's a possible escape route rather than a possible love interest. But that's the unique thing about a musical. With the different versions of it and just the different iterations of different actors and the way they play characters, um, the original 1997 Vienna production is different from the first German production, which is different from the later Stuttgart, Hamburg, Berlin productions. You see, different Sarahs will play it slightly differently with different Alfreds. But meanwhile... Sarah has caught the attention of the vampires in the distance, including the Count of Krolok, or in this case, Graf von Krolok. He's very much your, your, what you would imagine the Count in the castle on the, in the distance to be like. Except he has a gay son. He loves his dead gay son. His undead gay son. But then, <laughs> oh yeah, we're, we're going to rattle them up here. He's kind of the combination of the, the Byronic hero, which we've discussed before, and something more self-aware. He does sing about loneliness and the boredom of immortality, but he's also really excited to fuck around with humans. Yeah, He likes a- to play jokes and mock the fact that they're scared of him. He's more aware of his situation than I think a lot of the other vampires or a lot of other characters are. Like, he, he, he knows what sucks about his immortality, and he hates those things, or at least he wishes he could be more evil. He sings about not being neither an angel nor a demon. He's somewhere in between, which is an interesting thing, because normally we see them as one of the extremes. I think that's a little bit of um, well, at least playing he's... the narrative on his part, anyway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he is the type of character who busts into girls' bathrooms and everything, so... In fairness, she is totally up for it. <laughs> She probably wishes there was a he'd come at a different time, but she's kind she of been waiting. She was busy with her sponge. Yeah, he interrupted her sponge time. And yes, as far as we know, the sponge is a metaphor. Well, she says that it's good for your health and you need to do it at least once a day. And would Alfred help her? Hang on a second. I know, I'll get this in a second. Is it about sex? I was thinking masturbation, but yeah. <laughs> sex with someone you love. So not Alfred. Oh, nice guy can't catch a break. Am I right, ladies? But anyway, um, he comes to visit her in the night. Invites and... her to the midnight ball. But Alfred is so busy snooping on her in the bath that he finds out the Count is there. Yeah, well... He disappears. Sarah is punished by her dad with a spanking, which, you know, is a whole can of worms we'll get to. Rebecca and eventually is panicky at this. She, she's not impressed by this at all. She's, like, screaming for help at the time. Yes. And this is basically Sarah saying, okay, screw this, I'm going off to the party. And she gets a lovely pair of red shoes and has this big dream of escaping and having an adventure while Alfred is singing about how much he's in love with her and she's sort of singing along but more focused on just getting away. Yeah, he's an escape rather than a love. She runs away, her father runs after her, but 
is returned, frozen, in a ridiculous position. That's a trend in the musical. Um, yeah. And he's being jumped on. He's been stuck yes. dry. But the locals say it was an attack from wolves. And, and Bronze is like, oh, come on. And he, Professor knows exactly what's going on in a wonderful moment of competence <laughs> and says he needs to stake him, which, of course, Shaggle's wife, Rebecca, is not up for. She chases him away and she has a sort of final moment with her late husband and swears that she'll never let anyone desecrate his corpse. And then she leaves. And do we ever see her again? I don't think uh, we I think did. we just sort of see her in the shadows a little bit. But yeah, that's the end of Rebecca's story. Or at least Meanwhile, Magda comes in. <laughs> yeah, and she's an interesting character in this concept of this. Because up until he, um, now, the other people in town are Jewish. Or at least Chagall and Rebecca and Sarah are. Chagall is very, very Jewish. <sighs> Which, yeah, um, I'm, we're not Jewish. No. So we can't really offer an authoritative analysis of this character. But, and also, it's based on a character written by a Jewish writer and director. But you would be hard-pressed to not realise he was supposed to be Jewish. Including the bit where he actually says he's Jewish. So um, I will say, the one bit that I laughed at in the movie, like, actually had a, a bit of a snort laugh, is in that scene in the movie where he says, Oy vey, have you got the wrong vampire? Yeah, so Magda Like, comes- that joke lands. Yeah. Magda comes down, and she is actually Christian. She's the, the Shiksa goddess trope, that sort of concept. And um, she comes in with her crucifix, and up until then, Chagall has been basically sexually harassing his maid. And she has very conflicted feelings about it, because she doesn't like the guy, but it does suck that he has died, and his daughter's been taken by the vampires, and she's, she's just having conflicted feelings, because... I mean, even we've all had moments where someone we didn't like die, and we're like, yeah, yeah, that does kind of suck. I mean, I didn't like the guy, but she has a very human moment. Very human. And a a really genuinely quite complex emotional song about it, where she really explains, you know, I feel safer now that he's gone, but it doesn't mean that I'm happy about him actually being gone, which is premature. Yeah. I mean, Rebecca knew that he was doing that to Magda, and tried to bash him over the head for it. Um, she ended up hitting the wrong man. <laughs> so and it's not really indicative of what kind of relationship Magda and Rebecca had. But it doesn't seem like she blamed Magda at all, which I thought was a, a nice touch. So anyway, she's trying to deal with her feelings over the death of her harasser. When he, he wakes up, she tries to hold out the crucifix. He's like, ah, that doesn't work. I'm a Jewish vampire. And promptly eats her. Well, he but doesn't, doesn't mean to. No, because he, he tries to, you know, okay, now let's go upstairs and tell everyone I am okay, and she's she's dead, and he's like, uh, um, crap. And poor Magda, she's t- put on back on the table, covered up with a sheet, and when they try to stake Chagall, there's a clown nose, squeak, squeak moment, honk, honk moment, when they try to count up the ribs, and there's something there that Chagall should not have had. Yeah, let's dance the your favours problematic samba. Yeah... Yeah, Magda does not get the best run in the beginning of this musical. Anyway, Chagall no. leads them to the office to lead them to the castle if they don't kill him, which, fair call. And they arrive at the castle. And this is one of the scenes where they take a very traditional scene and they sort of switch it around or at least change it up, change the relationship immediately. Because, you know, there is the Dracula archetype. Welcome to my castle. Come in, come in. Enter... And of your own free will, etc., etc. 
But when he introduces himself to his Professor Ombronsius of Königsberg, the guy who has been complaining all the time of not being recognised, of no one realising the, the wisdom and greatness of his research and everything, is greeted with, I loved your book. And he doesn't know what to do. Yeah, because the academic is genuinely flattered or his ego is flattered by this all because it's not really emphasised in the musical, but in the film he's basically been laughed out of his university for his theories. Yeah, they mentioned he's lost his chair at Königsberg. And this is his way of getting it back, by proving vampires exist. It's a flawless plan. (laughs) So... They're introduced to the Count and welcomed in, and then the Count brings out his son. Yeah, he's like, oh, and who's this young man? And he's like, an assistant? This is my son, Herbert. So basically, he's like, I'm going to start shipping this straight away. (laughs) He wants his son to be happy, and here's a handsome young man. Let's see how this goes. He's a good dad in many ways. (laughs) Yeah, Herbert has one line in this entire first act. And it's basically, finally, someone to take away my boredom, and Alfred's not too keen on that. Alfred is his sponge. Well, Alfred has the sponge, but... Yeah, he keeps carrying it around and rubbing it against his face. And basically, they've arrived at the castle, and boom, that's the, sort of the end of Act 1. And then Act 2 opens with Totale Finstianis. Yes, it is the song you think it is. Total Eclipse of the Heart, which originally was going to be written for some other vampire musical. That didn't go ahead, so he's like, eh. I'll just, you know, give the song to Bonnie Tyler. Look, if Andrew Lloyd Webber can recycle all of his songs and his musicals, so can Jim Steinem. It's only fair. Yeah. So this is the sort of big duet between Count and Sarah, who's having her moment of, this all feels very familiar, I totally want it, give it to me now, me wanty. Take off the scarf neck right here. Let's go yeah. for it. Come on, we've not got all day. She's yeah. really raring for it, which yeah. is fascinating. That's where the sort of the Twilight comparison comes in, because she wants it too. She wants the immortality. She wants the bite. But the Count of Grafon Korlok refuses, because it would be so much better if they did it at the peak of the midnight ball in front of everyone. He likes his drama. Yeah, that sort of gives him that self-awareness. He knows what would make the best. He doesn't really know... I don't think he knows that he's in a story, but he knows what would make the best drama in the best situation, which is show off his pretty thing in front of all his friends and, you know, his midlife crisis is peaked with the, t- with the young redhead. A 17-year-old redhead. Yeah, it's, it harkens back to that old predatory coming after your women story, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's Dracula in a nutshell. And Ruffin. And Camilla. And Camilla. <laughs> Meanwhile... While she's having her fantasy come true, Alfred is having a nightmare involving monsters and a sexy ballet dancer and some amazing choreography, failing to save Sarah, getting bit by a vampire dude, possibly being really, really into being bitten by the vampire dude. This is different productions differ on this. Some Alfreds are like totally into caressing the dude, others not so much. And the then, level of crotch thrusting depends on the production. Yeah, and the amount of just Alfred generally stroking the, the black vampire. And in his dream, he not only fails to save Sarah, he actually kills her. Which, <laughs> if you know what happens at the end, is funny. And you will. Yeah, so after his dance substitute nightmare, he realises we need to get Sarah out of here. Ambrosius is obviously more concerned with staying and killing the vampires, or at least getting his assistant to kill the vampires. He's not that proactive. He's the ideas man, you know? Yeah. 
and Alfred is the worst actual putting it into action guy ever. Hence, Alfred not being able to stake anyone before. Yeah, he's sent to do the staking and can't actually do it. And then we see Shaggle and Magda again. Yep. Magda is now a vampire and she is horny. Yeah, she she she's dealing with feelings in it. She's got a whole new set of complex feelings. And again, problematic. So problematic sequence, ahoy. Because now that she's dead, she's kind of into Chagall. Or it's at least very she's horny, no means, yes. and he's there, and he's like, sure, let's go with this. Because if you look at what happened in uh, Totsuzaina's Komish, it's very, very much a, the traditional vampire bite as rape scene. So when you look at the sequence, it's now the, I raped you, now you're in love with me trope. Or at least you want to have sex with me again trope. Fucking Chagall. After that scene... Well, Alfred, Alfred and... Alfred and Ambrosius yeah, Alfred... are still trying to do their thing and failing. Um, they can't stake the the vampires again. Ambrosius is talking. Alfred's still in love, and Ambrosius is still talking and talking about books, 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 he and just... then still more books. Yeah, this guy is really evil and monster, and we need to get rid of him. But his library is amazing. <laughs> and this time. Sarah finds is is found in the bath with the biggest sponge ever because her man knows how to provide for her. Mm-hmm. And Alfred is like, "We need to get you out of here. I'm going to save you, and we'll live together happily." And she's, "Oh, have you seen the nice dress that I've been bought? I'm going to the ball tonight. I'm going to have a good time. Why are you still here?" She's happy. She may not be entirely aware of what is actually going on, but from where she's sitting, she's perfectly happy. Yeah, and besides. There's someone else who really wants Alfred's attentions. Hello, problematic sequence again. Herbert is yeah. back. <laughs> Herbert is really in love, and the result is a trope that we see a lot in vampire fiction. It's when you conflate the same action with uh, sex and feeding, the two often get mixed up. Because we talk about the erotic of the the erotic nature of the bite, and I think I've mentioned Mike Liebisch, who plays Herbert, actually discussing this in a in an interview type situation. We talk about the erotic nature of the bite of necking and things like that, but that's also the same way vampires feed. It's a really confusing. It must be really confusing for vampires, you know. It's like the equivalent of eating with your genitals. <laughs> Yeah, I've read American Gods. I know how that works. <laughs> Coming to stars very soon. If it's Brian Fuller, you'll find a way to put it in an episode, won't you? Oh, he's putting it in. He's making that character one of the I main know, characters. I know, I'm just talking about if, if you can find a Brian Fuller reference, you will put it in an episode of this. Oh, yeah. We can talk about Mads Mikkelsen later if you want. <laughs> he's so dreamy. He's our dream Dracula. Oh. So, you get this weird semi-sincere, semi-comedic comedic song from Herbert Basically, called When Love Is Inside You. Yeah. Yeah. And Herbert, it features one of the better one of the better physical comedy gags in the show. And then he's going to lunge at him and then he gets spanked with an umbrella. Well, he gets a book shoved in his mouth. Alfred runs away through the audience, back onto the stage and has this, ha, I've escaped. Except he's sort of run back into the same spot and eventually realises that Herbert is right behind him. And Herbert promptly leaps on him and tries to eat him. Except sometimes he just sort of leaps into the air and just sort of wheeze onto him. And Ambronsius finds him just as he's about to be bitten. Banks Herbert with the um, with the umbrella. Herbert's react in various ways. Mostly they just go whoop! And seem to be kind of into the spanking. Kuro Gordiv, 
who's one of the Russian hermits, he sort of gets a look of, did I just leave the gas on? <laughs> well, it's probably more like, Herb- uh, Alfred, how did you spank me? I've got your hands right here. I mean, I'm not opposed to it, but how? And then just to make sure you didn't get what Ambrosius thought this was about, he berates um, Alfred for partaking in sodomy, or at least being seduced by the vampire. And in some productions, as they leave, Ambrosius will actually cover his backside. Herbert is not impressed by this. So it's an entirely problematic sequence, and yet it's the favourite of many audiences because they totally ship Herbert and Alfred. Yeah, most of the fan fiction out there is Alfred Herbert. There's not enough. Which is surprising (laughs) given that the, the main kind of... The central relationship of the show very clearly harkens back to two of the most popular female pop culture fantasies of the past 40 years, which is Jareth, Sarah, and Phantom Christine. It's, it's basically the dueling relationships of Raoul Christine and Phantom Christine, except in this case, the original Raoul is playing the Phantom character in this. Yeah, the original choice was Steve Barton. Yep. Um, Once again, this will make more sense when we get to the Broadway discussion. Keep that in mind. Yes. Take notes. It's this sort of it's this sequence that really made Herbert the breakout character he is, because he doesn't appear in a lot of um scenes in the earlier productions, but he'll take over a lot of roles that were just anonymous vampire dude that was just singing. He'll appear in now in Cop- Cape Noctum, and he now appears in the finale. When he shows up on stage, you'll hear delighted screams from the audience. Even in the Russian one, he's like the guy, which I thought was really interesting because. It was a very recent production in the whole being gay is bad ramping up thing in Russia. Herbert apparently yeah. breaks all the rules and people like it. He is the true sparkly vampire. Are you saying Stephanie Meyer seen this? God, I hope so. <laughs> Man, what is Stephanie Meyer up to these days? We haven't heard from her in a long time. She's busy using the control F buttons on her keyboard. That's what she's been doing. <laughs> She's busy looking for loopholes in her contract so she can sue E.L. James. I know, that's the one thing about I regret about not waiting a little longer to do our Twilight recording. <laughs> because then we could have touched on the gender swap. But we're not doing a Twilight episode, we are doing... No. Tons of Vampire, <laughs> which is infinitely better problematic content aside. Yeah, I'm not ready to return to Twilight. Cleland has suffered enough for us all. Shout out. Anyway, everything's coming to a head. The ball's coming. Alfred's finally standing up to the professor. Meanwhile, the vampires are starting to wake up, come out of their coffins, brush the dust off themselves, you know, get their big poofy wigs all sorted. And they're bemoaning the problems with living forever. Graphon Clorlock does too, but he gets a solo. He actually had the sense to live in a house. (laughs) He's just sort of babysitting all the coffins. Do you think he charges rent on those? <laughs> See, there's a whole, like, real estate issue that we should totally get Jonathan Harker over to deal with. <laughs> I don't think he does that sort of thing now. He had one a bad experience and quit, okay? Oh, just one bad experience and he's off them for life. So silly. And, well, he's not going to come back to Transylvania again. True, true. Yeah, this is set in Transylvania, so. <laughs> but he sings about all the women he's loved and killed. So, well done, Graffron Krolok. And depending on the actor, he'll have a very high note. But the ball is here. Everyone is sort of stiff and moving and dusting, like we discussed. And then Grafon Korlok introduces the beauty with the eyes of the night. And it's Sarah in this pimped out red dress, although it is covered in dying flowers and everything. So you wonder who else has been wearing it. 
Gruff and Krolok has said, nope, none of you can have her. I'm the only one who's going to eat her. And he was like, aw. He's such a jerk showing off the food, this wonderful meal and then saying, nope, mine. But he's brought this professor and his assistant for them to eat. And meanwhile, the pro- said professor and assistant are currently in disguise and involved in the dance and they are freaking out. The bite happens. The vampire hunters are exposed. They try and flee. Except one problem. Sarah has turned. She promptly chomps down on Alfred, who seems quite happy with this now. He's had, apparently had time to warm up to it. And together the three of them head off with Ambronsius to go back to Königsberg to revel in his success and knowledge and everything, not realising that he's brought out two plague vectors into the world. Cut to some gothic nightclub now, where a whole bunch of leather wearing vampires are dancing the dance of the vampires and talking about how they're going to take over the world. It's a story where the bad guys win. And you want that. You're like, yes! Because clearly somebody has finally realized that the bad guys are awesome. They have the better songs, the better costumes. They have some amazing backup dancers. The electric guitars always kick in at the right moment. Because every now and then you need a reminder that this is a Jen Steinem show. So there's an electric guitar every now and then. And some reprise of Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> and the thing is, this song... actually works. And if you know your Jim Steinem, you'll know that there are some other songs that he's riffed off. But the most obvious is Total Eclipse of the Heart. Because what was it he said something about? Well, and they're German! They're not going to know Total Eclipse of the Heart! <laughs> and then they all started singing along and were enjoying it. He's like, oh, okay, okay. Okay, I planned it all along. And that's it, basically. Tons it's wonderful. And not a nutshell. <laughs> it's so good. And so terrible. In the sense that you I, the, have to make donations yeah. to rape crisis things because of the Polanski and yeah. problematic nature. It would be easier if, to discuss the show if the only reference to Polanski was the movie. Unfortunately, Polanski has actually directed several versions of the musical, including the most recent version of the show that was staged in Paris. Yeah. So he's now inextricably tied to it over time. Yep. I think he's had some involvement with all of the productions, or at least the big ones. The The unique one is the Japanese one, which is like, fuck Polanski. They didn't yeah. have him, his involvement on anything. Well done, Japan. It's also unique because it's the only stage version I've seen pictures of and everything where Her- Herbert goes back to his original movie incarnation and not wear pants during the attempted seduction scene. So, you know. Although, to be fair, in Herbert's defense, he was about to have a bath. So he was in his nightshirt. I don't know what the other Herberts are wearing when, they, when they're setting up the bath and everything, because they're in, like, you know, full shirt and pants and jacket. and Maybe he just, you know, jumps all in and it's how he washes his clothes. Okay, so characters. Yeah, let's, let's start with the women, because this is blood-sucking feminists. Let's start with Magda. Because she has the role, I think, ex- expands arguably the most from the source material. Because she, she, she is kind of a non-entity in the, in the film. Her story has changed quite a bit. She appears, is ogled, is hit on, slash harassed, slash molested. She gets bit and turned to a vampire very, very late in the movie. Or at least we finally see her right at the end being bitten and then Chagall drags her into a, into a grave and that's it. That's the last we see of them. Whereas, as, you, as we know, she is turned in Act one and she appears in a she has a a second song in act two and she takes part in Carpe Noctum or at least the actress does whether 
it's the same character is up for debate because it's all in Alfred's head. Possibly uninfluenced by Herbert. Again, it's the different productions have different personal can- head cannons and everything. This sort of thing. And then she leads the finale song, which is hell of a lot more than she had in the movie. She's very much an object in the movie. Yeah, she. This this is one where I think the Hammer influence is quite clear because by this point in the sixties, Hammer movies were becoming less about the atmosphere and the story and more about the blood and the tits. <laughs> when we know Magda has tits, we're not joking. Oh, we're, we're is, reminded this is of like it pretty constantly. a good chunk of her characterization. There is boob contouring, and boy, is there contouring! It is like Kardashian level contouring. Yeah, well, it depends on how much there was to work with, but. <laughs> She's very much your classic sassy, sexy mezzo-soprano. Yeah. Your fiery redhead with boobs. The interesting thing about Magda, or one of the things I find most interesting, is something you don't actually end up seeing in the production. At some point in time, she and Herbert end up like bros. They sort of seem to chill, and like they appear in Cape Noctum together in the more modern versions, seeing at each other and just having fun messing with um, Dream Alfred's head, and then they share their finale together. And sort of, you know, again, sing with and to each other. And they're sort of hanging out together. So somewhere in the background, she's dumped Chagall and has run off with her new BFF. Did you read what I think one of the French Herberts said about the rela- that relationship? Because somebody asked about that. No, I haven't seen that. I'm not going to tr- pr- try and pronounce his name because my French is terrible. <laughs> I've started to learn it, but I'm nowhere near actually going to try and speak it. I haven't been to Germany, so... Been- I haven't spoken it in 10 years, but I have a history of German. His basic idea was Herbert is Grafon Krolok's biological child, born a vampire, killing several um, nannies and governesses along the way, because teeny tiny baby vampire. But uh, Magda is his biological sibling. She's basically the vampire version of a squib, born human rather than a vampire. Their mother disappeared in a sunbathing accident. and That's Mag- amazing. <laughs> See, that's humour, Polanski. And Magda was left to be raised in the village because you can't have a human child in the vampire thing. And now that she's been turned back into a vampire, the family is reunited, and that's why they're immediately so close, because Herbert's finally got his sister back. See, that's quite sweet. I like that. Yeah, I I thought that was sweet, too. Sunbathing accident aside. Although it makes you wonder why, you know, Grafron Krolik wasn't like, uh, so hey, um, you're like my kid. Do you want to be a vampire like you're meant to be? But then again, Grafon Krolok has different priorities. Maybe he thought his kid was happier as a human, since he's not always too keen on his vampiric nature. But Herbert seems well up for it. <laughs> Herbert's well up for it. He's bored, but he's, you know... Uh, but that that is Magda. She She's a secondary character who rises above the victim status of her circumstances that she was in the film. And she's clearly part of the vampire takeover of the world. She's at least in the goth clubs having fun. She's had to give up some of her um, limelight to share with Herbert, but I don't. she doesn't seem to mind because it's, she's got her friend now. As we've discussed before, the most problematic elements of her character are she's defined quite a bit by her breasts, and she is the victim of um, constant sexualization and sexual harassment. And the, the final And through the very, does. like, Benny Hill-style womp, womp, ha-ha, tits are hilarious, let's grab them, that's really funny consent, what's that kind of route? Yeah. Which is very 1960s. And of course, just the whole, I kind of want to have sex with a dude who's killed. Like we said, problems. Yeah. That's Magda. I love Magda. She's awesome. Yeah, I like her too. She's not as short-thrifted in this story as Rebecca is. 
No, poor Rebecca. So Rebecca, remember, is um, Chagall's wife and Sarah's mother. Even regardless of everything else that's going on, her daughter has been abducted and her husband dead. And no one thinks to inform her of anything going on once they decide to go off and get Sarah again. Yeah. She's just dropped entirely from the story. Yeah. I mean, she's kind of pitched as the nag. Yeah. But she's a necessary nag. Her family are at risk of constantly being eaten, and her husband keeps trying to get off with the barmaid. But she's not being... Now, traditionally... She's not better, she's yeah, not better she would towards be, her. If we were going with a lot of tropes of the sort of arrangement of that triad, Rebecca would hate on Magda quite a bit. She'd be a total meanie meanie. But she's not. She's all angry at Chagall for his treatment of Magda and what he's trying to do with her. Maybe she recognises that, you know, Magda's a, a good good Christian. She's not into, you know, this sort of sex before marriage type of thing. You know, we see her knitting and she's she doesn't do that sort of thing. She may not be the same religion, but she, there's a possibly a recognition of this is a, a good, you know, a, the good girl, which is part of the Magda's arc into the, the corrupted good girl. Because in the, in the movie, um, Magda's like, if you touch me, I scream. Or no, if you undress in front of me, I scream. But yeah, poor Rebecca, she's left alone. That's like her last words, uh, how she's now alone. And then she goes up to her room, and that's it. Yeah, it's pretty cruel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very realistic, but it's really sad that she's got this short end of the stick. Daughter is a, as far as she knows, her daughter has been feasted on by vampires and is dead as well. And her husband is a dead pervert. And she can't bring herself to stake him through the heart. But even here, she's got more of a story arc than she does in the in the movie. It's not much, because there wasn't much to work with as she doesn't, you know, go anywhere physically. But she's just rounded out a little bit more. And even just that little bit more makes a big difference. Yes, and so that leaves us with our, our character, 17-year-old Sarah. She's, as we spoke before, she's... She's very much in that same sort of role as many other young women in musicals. She's the, the girl who wants more out of her life. She's feeling constrained by her father. Quite literally, he bars her in her room. Or tries to. He only shuts one side. Um, and he sings about how a beautiful daughter is a blessing. That kind of drives you crazy. He sings about the paternal urge to protect his daughter from the evils of the world and the evils of men. And then immediately goes off and tries to... To get off with Magda. He actually says, as a man, he knows how... Oh, he sings, rather. How, as a man, he knows that how horrible men are. And then he goes... So, basically, don't try and touch his daughter, but he's totally okay with trying to touch whoever's daughter Magda is. Possibly Graffron Corlox. No wonder Graffron Corlox doesn't like him. <laughs> and here comes an opportunity. Well, she's actually got a couple of opportunities to run away. There's Alfred, who could take her away to, again, the big city of Königsberg. And then, of course, the vampires show up, and it's like, even better. She'll get to be immortal and be beautiful forever and go to fancy parties and wear fancy dresses and be young and beautiful forever and possibly make out with this handsome older guy who will give her a sponge. And if you didn't get her fantasy already, it is really outlined in Stärker aus Versint, which is when she has a great big fantasy, which has your very classic vampires in red capes with beautiful ladies in dresses all dancing around. It is the typical fantasy of this kind, right down to the colour palette. Yep. It's black, white, and red. Yep. I do love about that song is, at the very end, um, the Graffron Crawlock dance double bends down to kiss her, and she promptly shoves him back, on, on, back down onto his knees and deepens the kiss. So she takes her fantasy is not just that she'll fall in love with the vampire and everything, but she will bend him to his knee. Which is 
fascinating. Yeah, she she wants to be in control of her fantasy. Her fantasy does not involve her giving up control. It may involve giving up her life for immortality and everything, but she there's something inside of her that wants to be in control because she lacks control now. Consent. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I know we kind of make that joke a lot, but once you've seen the movie that this is based on and you realise how it just... Her desires and aims and basic interests are never even mentioned. Yeah, in the movie, she's actually... V- savagely um, attacked very, very early on. She's bitten in the bathtub and abducted in the same night. Like, there's just some blood on it, some foam left of her. And then her father tries to climb out through the window of the roof and can't. I don't know how Gruffin Krolok managed to get her out because he could barely get in. Did you see how he sort of struggled to get his legs in through that hole as he came in? <laughs> I love that moment of just grace, complete gracelessness. Yeah, and then they cut to him coming, descending gracefully it's like, what? Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional, so maybe they just couldn't do it in any of the takes and they just went with the best one. Yeah, given how many different languages were being spoken on the set of that movie, and they've talked about how the Italian cast were just swindling them dry. It's uh, <laughs> like, we, we were done, that take is fine. Yes, yeah, so, and she's clearly under his influence in the movie, rather than, whereas yeah, you know, he's kind of made some overtures to her in the musical, but this is all totally her. She may not be entirely informed about what is actually going to happen, but she's like, yeah, I'm off to the castle and I'm going to wear a pretty dress and he gave me these fantastic shoes and I'm going to be immortal bitches. And of course, in their big Total Eclipse of the Heart number, her sort of final action as the song ends is to pull off her scarf and basically tilt her neck to him. She's like, yeah, come on, come on, let's do it. Yeah. We haven't, yeah. We haven't got all night. Come on, I've got a party to get to. Yeah. And we actually get back to the whole Twilight thing, where it's the woman pushing for the the sex and the biting and everything, and the man's like, no, no, we must wait. No, now is not the right time. I mean, I know Tars of Vampire came first, etc., etc., but it's in that same strange mould. So there, there, there is precedent for the, the vampire refusing the lovely virgin Nick. Well, this is the era that the urban fantasy and paranormal romance was really yeah. rising through the ranks. Although I have to and say... And women were kind of heading those up. Graffron Krolok is clearly not a virgin. No, you didn't see. Well, unless he, you know, found Herbert somewhere and just like, sure, you can be my son. <laughs> that makes him Carlisle then, I guess. But <laughs> who, who knows? There's a lot of things that are unsaid and thus it's up to the different interpretations of different casts. Again, unique element of the story compared to the other ones that we've analysed. Because even though there have been many, many adaptations of Dracula over the years, most of them aren't really close to the source material. And they're all wildly different. This is what happens when a show runs for a a certain length of time. And this show has run quite a few years when you add them all together. And it's about to be revived again in Munich next year. They announced the Munich thing right at the end of the French production. And of course, there's going to be a Berlin production. But yeah, Tanz de Vampire is, hit nearly, is nearly at 20 years. That's really well done. Especially given the rate of other vampire musicals not making 20 weeks. And for it to be this successful with Naria, Broadway or London West End presence, it's, it's quite rare. Yeah, I mean, it, it did have Steve Barton to begin with, who was, you know, the original Raoul and Phantom. But other than that, nah, not Broadway. God damn it, Broadway. And then at the end, she becomes the vampire, and she's apparently going to destroy the world. Well done, Sarah. Well done. She really rises up the ranks. Indeed, indeed. And it's her 
very deliberate um, almost rejection of the the Raoul stand-in that is so fascinating in this production as well. I, I struggle to call him a nice guy with the, the capitalised letters for all he that term entails. No, he, he's too hapless and too earnest to be that. Even if he is peeking at her in, through the keyhole when she's in the bath. Yeah, he, he has his issues. He's... I think it's, it's similar in many ways. He's shut off, so the first time he really sees a beautiful woman, his immediate thought is, I love her, and not just, yeah, well, we should spend some sponge time together. Although, if she's up for it, which he thinks she is, considering what she's saying... Yeah, but look how goofy he is when she brings that up. She clearly... He seems really bemused by the fact that she is talking about the thing that he thinks she's talking about. She is the MRA nightmare of the um, woman <laughs> manipulating the nice guy. You know, she'll, yeah. she'll manipulate the nice beta guy and then run off to the alpha. Once again, she's Bella. <laughs> she's every men's rights activist nightmare. Because uh, then she'll eat the nice guy. Hashtag Miss Andre. Feminacy stole my blood. <laughs> so that, that's, those are the three women. The men are the men. Are men. We've already discussed some of the problems with Herbert von Krolock. He basically exists to be the the flashy sparkly, predatory gay stereotype. Although he has become more flashy and sparkly as productions have gone on and he's become more famous. The um, amount of sparkle Herbert has is in direct correlation with the amount of screen uh, stage time he has. So, there we go. But I think the the big interesting one is Graffon Krawlock and his role as sexy, sexy vampire man. But the thing is, he wasn't originally... I mean, he was, to an extent, certainly more sexy, sexy vampire man than he is in the movie. But that, as the show has progressed, and as there's been more productions, and as we've entered the post-Twilight age, the aesthetic of his character has changed to fit that. Yeah. So he's gotten more sort of slinky-looking and younger at times. Some of the actors playing him have been a bit young, too, which probably helps. Not like Carlisle young, but, you know. Yeah, well, Carlisle is just ridiculous. Seriously, he's like 23, and we're supposed to be taking him seriously as a doctor with the foster children who are like 19. Yep, totally legit. That's probably just what people go, like, sure, why not? We just really need a doctor. But then again, Steve Button wasn't that old either, because he died quite young. R.I.P. Steve Button. Yeah, he was only 47 when he died, so... He also played the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. See, that's the sort of role... You can sort of, again, stage musicals are quite... It's quite obvious you can see what sort of roles fit certain actors and characters... Obviously, there are some crossovers, like how in Phantom, you'll often find Raoul's going on to play the part of the Phantom. And in, in Towns of Vampire, you actually find there's some occasions where the Herbert has gone on to play Graffin Krolock. In some cases, he's been swing between both roles. So you, he'll be Herbert one night, and then Graffin Krolock the next. I think this was the case with the Russian one. Graffin Krolock falls into that sad, but possibly romantic... That sad romantic hero, slash villain... It's a very Broadway trope. Yeah. And even though this isn't Broadway, obviously a lot of these follow the same kind of kind of route. Yeah. Well, I know that at least two actors who've played Graffin Krolock have also had the lead role in um, Dracula, the musical. Drew Sarek and... Uh, is it Kevin Tarter or Thomas Borshert? Uh Are we talking about the Frank Wildhorn one? Yeah. Or at least have played Dracula in a musical called Dracula the musical. 
Yeah, there's a lot of Dracula the musicals in the world, and we may not get a chance to review them all unless someone is willing to translate Czech for us. Uh, it was um, Borshit, sorry, not Tata, which is funny. Cause or a mistake. Borshit is the one who doesn't like playing Grafon Krolok and get, keeps playing him. Really? Mm. But it's the better role. I, 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 I know, I know. But if you want to get something interesting, Norm Lewis, that we were discussing earlier, played um, Van Helsing in the recording. <gasps> oh, yeah, yeah. He also played okay, Jack Seward, so I don't know what was going on there. Man, he might make that musical tolerable. Not sure how I feel about that. He's the only reason I've listened to Phantom in the past several years. <laughs> Gruffin Krolock is very much a standard tropey character, both in, well, especially in vampire fiction, but also a musical. He has the same voice type as a lot of other semi-tragic, um, romantic heroes or villains. He's often a baritone, somewhat comedic, but he has been played by tenors, well, famously Drew Sarek and infamously Michael Crawford, but, but which is a bit like the Phantom role. Traditionally a tenor, but has been played by baritones, and clearly Norm Lewis is not a tenor. Norm Lewis is like the opposite of a tenor, and yet he played the Phantom. So there is some flexibility. What can't we say about Drew Sarek? Drew um, Sarek is flawless. He he is my favorite Grafon Krolok. He he's so an American. He's an American actor who primarily does musical theater in Germany. Which is not he was, uncommon. No, it isn't. Uh, he was the original Quasimodo in the Berlin version of Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney musical, which is now in English language, and I believe it was recently staged in New York, not on Broadway. because yeah, they have done a, an English translation back. And well, Given that Hunchback of Notre Dame is my favourite Disney movie, you can understand the combination of things here that make me very happy. He's also unique, as we mentioned that there is some crossover between Dracula and Grafron Krolok in most parts, including actors who have played the role. Drew Sarek has the dubious distinction of playing, having played, what, five vampires over um, three musicals? Grafon Krolok, Dracula, of course, and over two different runs of Lestat, he played three different um, characters. He played Marius, he played Lestat, and did he play Louis as well? He was, Given and, how and very he was, um, he was Armand in the um, right in the actual Broadway. Keep in mind that Broadway show ran for like seventeen performances, <laughs> which is sad because I do like Kill Your Kind. That's a musical we have so many things to see, and when we feel safe enough to talk about Anne Rice-related things, we will. So basically never. Yeah, unless you want to pay us to do that. And then buy us a safe house, and... <laughs> we, are re- we require no fewer than three very heavy goons to look after us. Yeah. So I think we need to approach the, um, uh, the elephant in the room. Oh, God. You, you, yeah. You, you can deal with it. I, I couldn't watch the entire thing... Neither could I. I couldn't do it. But you love okay, the so, Wikipedia entry, so I'll I'll leave it yeah. up to you. Keep in mind, Catherine and I have quite high cringe tolerances for a lot of things. I, I mean, like Phantom. I, I've seen the Phantom of the Opera movie several times, voluntarily. I own it at the 25th anniversary thing at the... I, 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 I actually unironically like Phantom. Well, that version's got Remy and Karen Lou in it, hasn't it? It does. <sighs> we can't talk about nice things. We have to talk about bad things. So, we're going to talk about the Broadway version. I'm primarily going to be quoting from the Wikipedia page because the Broadway section on the Wikipedia page for Tanzer Vampire is the shadiest thing on the internet. Yeah, you thought we were shading Byron in our episode on the vampire? Oh, we didn't even get started. No. <laughs> so, is, yeah. Vampires would rather up. go out in the sun than be in the shade. <laughs> That's that shady. 
be comfortable, enjoy this. So predictably, there were plans to do an English language version. Because it was successful in Germany, so I thought, hey, it might be successful in America. It's an interesting age in Broadway because The Lion King has become one of the most successful things on Broadway. Mamma Mia is about to hit, so the jukebox musical and the musical from recognisable properties are really what's beginning to take over and make Broadway what it has become today. Mm-hmm. But it's not there yet. So the idea of something a little more original, even though it's based on an old movie, it's there. So they decide, let's translate it to English. And we're going to open it on Halloween 2000. And we're going to have it be directed by Roman Polanski, even though he is not allowed to enter UK, enter the USA, because he'll be arrested for that whole drugging and raping a 13-year-old girl thing. You might have heard about it. Remember that? It was a big deal, right? So they had to get rid of him, obviously. I can't believe they would think that was a bad decision. And they decided to put it off to 2001. They bring in direct new directors. They bring in David Ives, who's a very prominent playwright who wrote a wonderful play called Venus and Fur. You may recognise. And they decide, we're going to make this bigger and more comedic. The phrase they used was pure Mel Brooks with a lot of Anne Rice. See, the, the problem there is they've tried to make a comedy out of something that is already a comedy. And they wanted to make a musical for people who think musicals suck. There's a big problem when you try to make something for people who don't like the thing. You know how people keep trying to make films all for men, even though men don't like certain things? Because it's not enough to have women like the thing. It's kind of like that. So basically what Disney had been doing with like Tangled and Frozen and getting rid of references to their being... Yeah. So they were trying to do this with what with, is now called Dance of the Vampires. But while this is going on, there's a massive creative fight going on. Jim Steinem is not happy with anything going on. The writers have no idea what they're doing. They're being told to put more jokes on every page, so they just sort of resort to puns. Like These are like Tony-winning writers, and they're doing puns. And this is before we get to the casting. So the names that they had for people who they wanted to play the role were David Bowie, John Travolta, Richard Gere, and Placido Domingo. Somebody just put up men who have a certain age who can sing, clearly. Someone was ambitious. But eventually they got Michael Crawford. Now keep in mind, at this point in time, Michael Crawford had not worked on stage for quite some time. Five years, maybe? Three, four years? The last thing he'd done had been a big show in Vegas that had injured him to the point where he needed a hip replacement. He managed to get complete creative control over his character and a rumoured $180,000 a week to do the show. He claimed that this was not true and they got it down to something like $30,000 a week, which is still a huge amount of money. You know, stage actors don't tend to pull in the kind of you know Hollywood money. The reason, apparently, and you can see apparently it's going to come up a lot here, the reason that Crawford was so insistent on getting this level of control was because he had recently lost the film role of the Phantom to Antonio Banderas, who was then replaced by Jared Butler. His ego was a little bruised. So he comes into the show, he wants more comedy because he's worried that the role will end up being a repeat of the Phantom, which is an understandable concern because the influences are there, but it doesn't really work. He starts doing an accent which Catherine informs me is supposed to be Italian. Yeah. If you are having trouble imagining what has become of Graf von Krolock, the best description I can come up with is Draco in leather pants grew up, moved to America, decided he wanted to be Cowboy Elvis and thought that adding an Italian accent to the whole mix would help him pick up chicks. That is probably an understatement of what is going on. It is terrible. Bless 
poor Michael Crawford, who I genuinely don't hate, okay? But by this point in his career, he is in his 50s. He's put on the weight. He's a little jowly. And costumes and makeup are not hiding that. And he's very sensitive about it. He's supposed to be playing the great sex symbol of, of the, the musical. And of course, it's not working. This is all going on. It's all falling apart. Jasinum is basically losing his mind. He's losing grip over the show. It's turning more into a sort of pun fest. And then September 11th happens, which means that there are further delays and the show does not go into previews for quite some time. At which point in time, everyone knows that this show is a train wreck. I just want to point out here that the actual subtitle of this section on the Wikipedia page is called Casting Crawford, 9-11 and Other Disasters. Like we said, shade. By the way, this is the longest part in the Wikipedia page. I am not even halfway done. We haven't even got to previews yet, oh. like technically. So they bring in all of these new creative people, including choreographers who have never done shows this big, a director who's never done a show this big with this many people, and in cast fighting. Cast began to poke fun at Crawford. Crawford felt like he was having the the show stolen under his feet from the actor playing the professor, who was René Aubergenois. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm not gonna try. You may recognize him. He's the voice of Chef Louis in The Little Mermaid. Les Poissons. Les Poissons, Les Poissons. Oh, and he is getting all the laughs in the show. Like, genuine laughs. Laughs at, oh dear lord, this is actually happening. And Crawford is not taking this well. And he's not listening to suggestions for his character. He's just going forward with his creative control. Steinem basically flips and runs off. <laughs> I don't think he's really had much to do anyway. He's just sort of like, well, I'm gone. And they eventually get to previews in 2002, a year after they were supposed to. Shows, it's its common for a musical to have many years of workshops, and previews tend to be 18, 14 shows maybe, two weeks. This one went on for 61. At the time, it missed two of its opening dates, and at the time it was the longest previews for any show. This was pre-Spider-Man Turn of the Dark. The show opens. It actually starts doing well. Michael Crawford and are bringing in the money. Then the reviews come out. The reviews are infamous. They're the kind of reviews that get passed around by Broadway kids. You know the way people pass around Roger Ebert's North Review? Oh, yes. And it closes very quickly. We're talking 56 performances. It had a longer preview than it did actual performances. And lost... About $12 million, which at the time was made it the biggest flop in Broadway musical history. And then Spider-Man kind of sorted that out. Yeah, thanks, Spider-Man. It didn't help that one of the shows it had to compete against was a revival of the Rocky Horror Show. Because it, clearly this was a musical that kind of wanted to be like that. But they didn't have actual Rocky Horror fun. They didn't have Raul Esparza either, and he was playing Riff Raff at the time. Well, that would have got your attention. I'm really easily pleased. He's so wonderful. So that's the, the great epic saga of Dance of the Vampires. And that's why you've never seen the musical in English. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, just watch it in German, guys. Well, I mean, I would, or whatever I would, other language you can find. I wouldn't mind an English translation. And there were a few hints in the bits of that I managed to watch of a translation that was kind of okay. Their version of Stronger Than We Are got quite close at times. 
it's not something that Steinem seems that interested in. No, not He anymore. actually wrote a blog post about this, which includes the line, Dance of the Vampires as we know it was, and this is in capital letters, utter shit. So I actually think he wrote this Wikipedia entry. <laughs> it's just so shady. So he, nobody else could have written this. Yeah, or he's just gone through and edited it. I feel like there would be more bitchy references to Crawford if that were the case. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, Michael Crawford. I'm glad that you are doing better now. He did the um, the Wizard of Oz production that Andrew Lloyd Webber did the TV show casting for. Oh, yeah. He also did the Women in White musical, which almost killed him. Like, I don't know why he keeps returning to Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But it, it didn't work in English because they didn't want to take it in any way remotely seriously. And it's not a musical that takes itself that seriously. It takes itself seriously enough. Yeah, it, it sits in the right spot between comedy and drama and seriousness and whatever. Because it has some of its serious moments and then it runs off into a song about garlic and things like that. So one of the big things that I w- want to talk about from the blood-sucking feminist perspective is... A change that happens early on in the English version. So basically, in the German version, German language version, sorry, Austria is not Germany, there are three female roles. There's the occasional... You, you, there are some female background dancers, and there's like one vampire dressed up as like Queen Elizabeth at some point, because the vampires that show up at the end are famous figures. There's um, King Ludwig II, you know, the the builder of um, Neuschwanstein, and... There's a whole shipping thing on the Russian side of it. Well, because he and um, Herbert... Well, basically it seems that after being rejected by um, Alfred, Herbert decided to call up his fancy BFF, FWB, who knows what their relationship is, <laughs> to come to the dance with him. And they're like flirting and dancing together. And so the ship has been dubbed King and Queen. <laughs> but um. Yeah, see, and that's an example of the differences you see between the, the different performances and the different productions, because different characters will appear in the background there. But there are only three female characters in the original German language version. In the English version, they actually give Sarah two female friends who appear in the very first song of the Broadway version, which was... Scroll, 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 scroll. Angels Arise, they call it. Basically, their job is to be silly and to scream when the vampires attack and be killed and taken away. Or at least taken away, possibly to be killed at a later date. That is basically their purpose. Seriously, what the hell? (laughs) I like how you're almost turning to me for answers. I have none. (sighs) What the bleepin' hell? See, we, we talk about the problems that the original musical has with women. The, the, the English version was just like, fuck it, we'll make it worse. Because the, the English version also removes all agency that Sarah has. She is seduced, although I don't know how, considering how terrible um, God has left the building is, and bitten by Grafron Crawlock, and so she's actually put under the influence. And you can see the, the influence of Dracula there because Alfred is actually asked to give a blood transfusion to Sarah to help save her from the vampire's influence after she's been bitten. Hmm, where have we seen that before? <laughs> you know, it's all the other times that... Except she only has one guy instead of three, f- four. And nobody tells um, Arthur Holmwood because he thinks that now that he's given her his blood, they're at least married in the eyes of God and... Um, Awkward. Do, 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 yeah, do, do, do. no, nobody. <laughs> no, shh, don't tell him. 
There is one thing I am appreciative of that the Broadway version did. We've discussed a trope before, especially in the Carmilla episode that shows up in a lot of older Transylvania set um, vampire works especially, but you also see it in things like Frankenstein adaptations and stuff like that, and that's the um, the hunchback um, servant. In this case, um, Kukul, and he also seems to have other developmental delays. He's not very good at speaking, and he can't string together more than a couple of words. He can take orders, mostly, but he's not neurotypical. He's that trope. He's more Igor-inspired than anything from vampire fiction I can recall. Yeah, because, I mean, the hunchback that appears in Camilla is, you know, he's he's clever, he's running his own business, He's he just has a physical um, disability, or rather than this less competent ego that is Kukul. So I appreciate the replacement of Kukul with Boris. Boris isn't that fantastic, but he has some nice dance moves. He, but he does take over Magda's role in, in things like um, Carpe Noctum. So I also have issues with that because it takes out a lot of the female characters. So you, you'd think you could do better, but no, no. How far did you manage to get through? Oh, the moment that Michael Crawford started talking, I just couldn't do it. So basically, God has left the There's like. There's like a weird magic mushrooms joke. That's like all I really remember. That, and there, that, that, that is the entire that. lead up to Angels Arise. That and the constant repetition of she'll be turning 18 in three days at the total at, on Halloween at the total eclipse of the moon. <laughs> Mandy Gonzalez and Michael Crawford, to their credit, at least have the decency to look embarrassed by what they're being made to do. <laughs> well, Michael Crawford <laughs> they, they, should look after... embarrassed. It's his damn fault. Yeah, but they have... Mandy Gonzalez has the expression of a woman that's spinking contract dispute. Yeah, which is a shame, because she is a, has an amazing voice. Oh, she's wonderful. She's done Elphaba and Wicked, and she was in In the Heights as well. Mm-hmm. And Max von Essen is a nice voice, too. He's done better for himself now, I believe he yeah, was... Yeah, it's, in... it's not been a case of, and everyone's careers have been destroyed. No, he's, they're all doing better. I mean, Michael Crawford hasn't really done anything for a while, but I think he's just enjoying retirement. He is in his did, 70s now. Did he get that retirement package? Because that's what the, uh, uh, the payment thing was termed. Well, he to. claims he didn't. I hope he did. Like, just so he'll stay away. This had to have been made worth it somehow, right? Just so he stays away. <laughs> stay Wait, I, away. He, he moved to New Zealand for a while. Oh, God! <laughs> get him out! Get him away! Get him away! Burn it! Burn it all! <laughs> You guys got Richard O'Brien as well. It's not all that well, bad. He's kind of from here. No, wait. Am I thinking of the right one? You know we have a riffraff statue up in Hamilton. Yeah. I did watch the... Um, I went to the, the special live screen they did on cinemas. Yeah. Which was awesome. Yeah, well, he moved here when he was like nine or something. So it's not like he just decided to move here and make us all, like, all our lives misery. And he does have citizenship, so... He moved to New Zealand to be closer to his family in Australia. Close <laughs> <laughs> <That's awesome> enough. <laughs> I know, I know. Did someone make a mistake well, on the like post- deal? Just, just to give you an idea of how New Zealand his family decided to go. In 1951, O'Brien immigrated with his family to Taronga, New Zealand, where his father had purchased a sheep farm. And <laughs> that is the most New Zealand thing. He's a stuntman in Carry On Cowboy. So there we go. I think it'd be interesting to talk a little further about the kind of vampires that are in this show. Because we've talked about the way that vampires you know, evolve from being, you know, the, sort of the typical you know, trope that you have with Dracula to the more Baroque version of something like Only Me Lovers Left Alive to the sparkles Darkly. of Twilight. Here, they seem more morose 
than ever. At, at least they do until they get fed. They, they kind of make, considering the fantasies that Sarah has about running off to be immortal and having fun and adventures, before that ball, everyone's just really bored. And they're all just they're, they're looking. Nap. They, they sleep most of the year. They're looking for an adventure as much as she is, almost. And or a she's meal. the spark of life that they need, clearly, just to kick them all in the butt and keep them going. Yeah, but I mean, I, there is almost a sort of um, a hierarchy in place. Because you have, obviously, this count and his, and his son. They actually get to live in a house. <laughs> He's um, got this very sort of poverty-stricken Jewish village under his thumb, to the point where they're all just incredibly scared of him and his, his Igor, basically. Yeah. The, the religious element is fascinating because all of the vampires are They were repelled by a cross. They're completely repelled by the cross. Which is just two sticks that form... It's not it's even the, it has to be a bleed across or anything. It's just they hold up a stick and then put another stick across it. And they're like, ah, we basic, can't go near it. Like basic window frames must make these people's lives hell. Well, that's probably how they were able to shove um, Ambronsius through it because they don't have like window frames. They just have <laughs> holes. But that would mean that Grafon Krolok, etc. are Christian. The Jewish Chagall is not repelled by a cross. So if you put like a Star of David in front of him, would he be like, nope? Can't do that. Can't touch it. I don't know, and that's what was really interesting to me. We normally see um, vampires in a Christian, probably even a, more specifically a Catholic context of you know your very religious vampire hunting priests using crosses and holy water, etc. There is a history of Jewish vampires in fiction, but they're very rare, and it's a very difficult thing that you want if you want to do it respectfully because of the whole history of blood label and everything like that. Do you really want to make the blood label? But, yes. Yeah. I mean, it, do you want to Merchant of Venice this? <laughs> yeah, because that's the thing. I'd be mean, like, I kind of think this vampire I've just written is Jewish, but how 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 do I do? And this? given the given the history of the genre, relying on the trope of being vampirism being a stand-in for xenophobia, mm-hmm. and the invader, the bloodthirsty aristocratic figure feeding off of the the deprived classes, and there is this stereotype of, you know, the greedy Jewish moneylender. Oh, look, the... Un- which goes back for hundreds of years. That's the thing. If you have a vampire who's over 2,000 years, you cannot have a Christian vampire. So in this case, anything older than... T- in this universe, clearly, anything older than the 2,000, you can't repel with the cross. Give or take some padding, depending on when this apparently happened. How would you repel an atheist vampire in this universe? Hold up a book of Dawkins's? That would just repel decent human beings. There we go. That's Just reading from his Twitter feed. Oh, no, decent human being. Excuse you. I'm a monster, not a bastard. Thank you very much. But it is, I feel like the Jewish element, I feel like it's here for a couple of reasons. One, that joke with Shagal. And two, because Roman Polanski's Jewish. Yeah. And I think in a case of write what you know, this is what he wrote. Yeah. And it's not developed on really at all beyond that one joke. Yeah, it's just because it's kind of funny, the, the image of a vampire just going, nope, wrong one. That is the only joke in the film that really lands for me. That and Alfred running away from Herbert and just running in a square. Yeah. <laughs> just that extended joke works. It does open up to the um, the question as well of if Sarah's Jewish and that's maybe why she isn't repelled by the cross as she's being dragged away by Alfred. She also hasn't completely turned yet, so... 
There is that as well. Because the th- the th- there's a couple of technical things about the show that we haven't mentioned that are amazing. First of all, the actors sing with fangs. They have to learn how to sing with fangs, and they do it amazingly. But also, there are a few instances where they actually have to shove the fangs in their mouths in about t- two seconds when you're not looking, and then go straight on to singing. The two obvious... Rounds of this is Herbert at the end of Van Leber and Dearest, because when he's singing, he doesn't actually have his fangs. But then when he's about to bite Alfred, the fangs have to pop out. So he actually ducks his head behind Alfred. That's the moment where he's shoving the fangs in. And then he goes to the sing the last word and bite. And at the end, Sarah, when she finally turns, she drops her head behind um, Alfred's shoulder and does the same thing. And um, then Alfred has to do the same thing when he's lying on the floor dead. But it's not as obvious because other stuff has happened. So that that's really impressive. Just not just the the change of your mouth, which, as you must get, impacts your singing so much, because you have to move your mouth differently, your tongue differently, which for singers is a huge thing. But the best thing that I love is the mirrors. This is a, a universe where vampires don't have reflections, so there are scenes where human characters have reflections, but vampires don't. They use dance doubles so when they're spinning around and doing things really quickly you've got a dancer on the other side of the mirror working blind having to know exactly where the other ones are dancing it's amazing and probably the best example of that is Van Lieber and Dearest because of the speed that Herbert is spinning Alfred around so the, 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 the knowledge and the skill and the practice that the three of them the two Alfreds and the Herbert have to have done to get everything to work is incredible they did do this in the Broadway show but they really half-assed it they kept stepping out of the mirror's view yeah but I think by that point in time it was just like oh we don't care anymore (laughs) not that I blame them but you know 14 million dollars down the drain so and at the point when Sarah leaves she still has a reflection as we can see in the the really crappy attempt at dancing that they do. If you've seen to t- been to TV trips, you've read about the sliding scale of vampire friendliness and the different adjustments to certain traits that make vampires more or less friendly, have more potential for goodness, is in there. And so one of the big ones in the sliding scale is, is their sort of effort to turn a person, you know, the classic I drink your blood, you drink my blood, become a mortal type situation, or are the plaguers, the plague vectors, where every bite turns you. And the interesting thing here is that the, the heroic vampires and the romantic vampires we have here are plaguers. Chagall gets bit, vampire. Magda gets bit, vampire. Sarah gets bit, vampire. Alpha gets it, vampire. There is no possible choice. There's, it's just you get bit, done. And that's the horror of the end and how they can so easily take over the world once um, our two plague victors are taken back to Königsberg. Although, I... Don't know. I, well, actually, it's very possible that Ambronsius is so unaware that he won't notice that the two of them don't go out into the daylight. He could very well just not notice, or they might just go out and bite him as well. Who knows? I think that's the implication, but he's so kind of in his own world that well, it's they... completely possible that he doesn't notice. <laughs> yeah, he's too concerned about his Nobel Prize. That'd be a fascinating award ceremony, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, even if you're not a musical fan, I really think you should check this out. If you are a musical fan, go watch it on YouTube. There is a version with English subtitles. I think there's a couple versions, actually. Yeah. um, there's. We recommend the version with Drew Sarek, because obviously... Also, it's the one that probably has the best subtitles. There's a subtitle version of the Hamburg Pro Shop with with Kevin Tata and um, Tim Reichwein as... Uh, Herbert. This Herbert is very recognisable for the way he moves his hips a la Jareth David David Bowie. It's 
really amazing. I don't know how his body actually works. It's kind of incredible. And there is a pro shot of the original 1997 Vienna cast, but it's degraded, and I haven't found it seen a version with subtitles. The ecosystem of Broadway fandom and the musical fandom and the sharing of shows, it's often kind of secretive. I mean, if you want a good bootleg, you really have to trade for it. So finding something on YouTube that actually has English subtitles for the non-German speaker is quite rare, so enjoy it. Yeah, some a fan actually just went through and translated it herself. She's a German speaker first, English speaker second. But I found it quite a really readable. It's not like the Hamburg shot that I mentioned earlier where it's more of a they've made it so it fits the lyric, the the, the notes and everything. So they've made it added rhymes and everything. It's a good it was a good read when I first saw it years ago. But if you're looking for a more direct translation, the Berlin with Drew Sarek and Mark Liebisch. Oh my god, Mark Liebisch. He's so pretty. It's a relatively pretty production overall that one. Yeah, but like Mark I mean, Liebisch I'm, I'm is biased, just like but... the prettiest vampire ever. Yeah. But we I do recommend that you watch it. I mean it is a very precarious tightrope of tone but I think it succeeds the music is a lot of fun I mean it is the only musical you'll ever see with an entire song about garlic as far as we know well yeah don't watch the Broadway show if you can make it through all of the clips of the Broadway show on YouTube we will sacrifice something or someone in your honour as for the movie you can really skip it yeah, it's I mean, really unless boring. it, you know, pops up on TCM like it did for me and you just my Skype because you know the episode is coming. <laughs> that That's really the only reason. Otherwise, I would have avoided it because Polanski. Oh, fuck yourself, Roman Polanski. Yeah. In a jail cell in America. Yeah. We shall be making a donation to a rape crisis shelter. To our, yeah, because to our local, trans-friendly. So if you would like to do one of those as well, go for it. We highly encourage it. If there were to be a, a reboot of Dance of the Vampires in English, what would you do and who would you cast? Well, one, I'd pick a tone and stick to it. I wouldn't try and up the comedy. I would really just kind of keep the structure and jokes that we have. I mean, they're, they're not bad jokes. They just need someone who actually knows how to deliver a punchline. You know, the movie didn't have that, but... Clearly, it just the... took a little tweak. And I think a lot of yeah. the songs could be translated very easily. It's not going to be that hard to, in your song about garlic, talk about things like, you know, all the, the penis jokes that are in there. And all the other songs, they, they would translate very easily, at least in the terms of content and tone, etc, etc. Because, I mean, Carpe Noctum is very easy, just like, well, they did a semi-decent version with Seize the Night. It sounded better when Meatloaf did it. But then again, Meatloaf... I really get the feeling with the English language version that uh, Jim Steinem was just yearning for the days when he could replace his lead actors with Meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler. Meatloaf would have been a better choice than Michael Crawford, even if he is getting a bit on an age too. Yeah, I think actually just a direct English translation with a few bits of localization just to fit in. Like, I know the um, Broadway version changed Königsberg to Heidelberg because people are probably more likely aware of Heidelberg being a university town. Yeah, because that was the important thing to change. <laughs> I think yeah. people, the producers of a, a new version of the show would just have to accept that this is the show they have and stop trying to make it to appeal to people who are never going to want to see a show like this. Seriously, there are enough would, American fans and English fans who would kill Broadway's somebody to a, get a good... Broadway is a tricky ecosystem right now. 75% of all shows on Broadway don't even break even. And the average Broadway musical costs 12 to $15 million. So think about the amount of lost so, money there. Broadway musicals are getting more expensive to mount, but they're also getting riskier to mount, which is why you see so many Disney shows or so many, hey, it's that movie that I recognize. Yeah, Rocky. Um, which is what makes... Blonde, um, um, 
yeah, but that's what makes something like Hamilton so wholeheartedly unique and worth celebrating. Not only is it a completely unique show, are you familiar with Hamilton? Yes. Go diversity. It's, it's Lin-Manuel Miranda's hip-hop yep. musical retelling of the life and times of Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. It's told with almost an almost entirely uh, people of colour cast, even though historically all these people were white. So really, nobody else has any excuse anymore for using the historically accurate excuse. Norm Lewis for everyone. Yes. But that's the thing is, when a show like that comes along, that's an exception, not a rule. You know, if you put that show on three, four years ago, even with all the success it has, it probably wouldn't make any money. We were all stunned that Fun Home made money. So there's a massive risk with doing this show. It would have to be impeccably done and impeccably reviewed, but even then that wouldn't make it box office gold. Yeah, well, we saw that they're having tr- that they had so much trouble trying to bring another um, Kunst musical in with Rebecca. So clearly, it's just not going to happen. The English translation of anything by this dude. No, the English translation of Rebecca is a whole other chaotic story into and of itself. There was supposed to be this mysterious producer paying for it all, and it turned out he didn't actually exist. Yeah. And then someone tried to claim that he died of malaria. Well, if you're gonna do it, go go big. Yeah, I feel like if you're going to do another Tans, you're going to have to cut that budget in half at least. Well, they you could do a stripped down version of the show. They have. Like, I don't see how that several would versions of it that have been quite stripped down. I've seen high school versions of it on YouTube. I, oh, cool. I, I don't know why there is at least one high school version of it, but it involves roller skates. <laughs> oh Lord. I, I I know, but it's high school, so you know. I think they were just going. Let's just run with it and go bonkers. There there are high school versions of Rent, so nothing surprises me. I actually saw a really good high school version of um, Phantom. Really? I didn't know that he'd actually allowed for high school there is, um There is a high school version and it's had some lyric changes. This one here <laughs> actually changed Andre to Madam Anna to allow for more female roles. Also, I think because it was a high school, so it was harder to get dudes. But yeah, it's amazing when they can get, like, they had a really good Carlotta, and that's got to be hard for a 16-year-old girl. Mm. really intrigued by this now. Who would you cast if there was to be a new version um, of Tans? Well, Drew Sarek is always an option, considering he is a native English speaker. Drew Sarek for everything. Drew Sarek for Jesus. Oh, wait, no, he's already done that. He's done that. He's done Phantom, he's done Jesus, he's done... Judas, Rocky. Yeah. Dracula. He's done Chess, he's done... Everyone in Lestat. Lestat. <laughs> it was almost a one-man show at one point, I think. <laughs> yeah, he could fill in for everyone. Then suddenly he appears in a dress playing Claudia. <laughs> on his knees. <laughs> well, Robin Karamloo would be a good idea. Yeah. He could probably be a really good Alfred as well, actually. Yeah. But Robin Karamloo, just... Yeah. Would you rather him sing for Sara or Ein Ladung Zumbal? Oh, Zumbal. Yeah, yeah. That's like... I think that might be the musical highlight for me, just especially the way that it's done in the version with subtitles. Oh, God. But he's just sort of, like, swanning around her bathroom while she's lying there, like, yep, yeah. I'm okay, I mean, can do I this. I mean, I appreciate Kevin Tata's cape swishing more than Drew Sarek in that, in that clip. There's the a high note adapted that he the, the music to fit um, Drew Sarek's tenor rather than the baritone of most other actors. They're like, well, we've got a guy with a high note. Let's just give him all the high notes. And what a high note. I remember because we were talking about doing this episode and I sent you that clip. And I was just getting messages from you on Twitter like, oh my god, this is amazing. If you were privy to our email conversations, <laughs> it would be so interesting. Like, I've got one, um, there's one famously titled Japanese Herbert Has No Pants. 
I have a full video timeline of Carpe Noctum and how gay it gets. The gradient scale of Carpe Noctum because of Catherine's emails. Uh, I, I decided to figure out when the change happened because the earlier Alfreds were really into getting bitten in the dream. Later Alfreds, no. And I wanted to figure out when it happened. But yeah, there's lots and lots of just discussions of note changes and dress changes and everything that's happened with that musical because... As we've said many times, it's unique because there's so many minor tweaks to it rather than every edition of Dracula. Anyway, how long is the musical and how long is this podcast? Don't seem. Okay. So anyway, thank you to Sarah J. Jones for being our first ever Fang Mail person. Uh, if you'd like to send us email, any, if you'd like to contact us, you can contact us at fangmail at bloodsuckingfeminist.com. That is fang. With a G, yes, we know, it's terrible. You can also visit us at our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com. We're also on Twitter, bloodsuckingfem, and Facebook, bloodsuckingfeminists, and Tumblr, bloodsuckingfem. Generally, just Google bloodsuckingfeminists, you'll, you'll find us. We're easier to find than a castle in Transylvania. Please, please come and tweet at us if you do end up watching this, because we really want to hear what you think. Yeah. Live tweet us if you can. It would be amazing. Let us know what your hashtag is going to be, and we'll just happily watch you discover this. Stay tuned for next month's episode. What is next month's episode, Kaylee? Oh, I believe we're going back to your homeland. Yep. Really small countries like New Zealand, so we're just going to be doing um, what we do in the shadows. It'll be a great victory. Like New Zealand at the rugby. Oh boy, that was amazing. And not like Scotland at the rugby. Sorry. So yes. No, you're not. Stay tuned for next time on Blood Sucking Feminists, really small countries like New Zealand, where we'll be discussing uh, what we do in the shadows. So if you haven't seen it already, go and watch it. It's amazing. You'll also get to see bits of my hometown. Uh, I did some really cheap vampire tourism work, which is basically just me standing outside the Glassons, where my sister used to work, and Sigourney Weaver once shopped at. And one of the vampires humped a lamppost outside of it. Woohoo! So we'll see you then. Good night. Don't let the vampires bite.